You and I, we have our own kingdom. We, we set up our own kingdoms. Our kingdom is whatever and wherever we decide to assert our control, right? Where, where we decide to insist on our will or where we're the ones who get the final say, like that is like, like how far your kingdom reaches in your own world, in your life. And it's our self-made kingdom. Most of us become obsessed with building and furthering and supporting and insulating our own little kingdom. And so the real question becomes this, Maybe the question of the day, when your will clashes with God's, which will you bow to? Which will you bow to? In other words, is your priority to be in control of your kingdom or is your priority to build God's kingdom? And when your will clashes with God's, remember that there can only be one king. All right, well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Man, so good to be uh, back together here today. Uh, isn't that weird uh, to have somebody say Merry Christmas to you? You almost have to pinch yourself. I uh, can't believe we are in this season. Things got real last weekend uh, when Lindsay and our sister-in-law went Black Friday shopping. Um, you know, uh, we are in the middle of, of just uh, trying to get everything uh, ready for Christmas. Kids are asking for this and that. Uh, even though we've told them that we are done shopping for you, things still, uh, they, they still send us links to Amazon and we're like, we're done, we're done, okay? Um, you know, this is the kind of year, the time of year where uh, Lindsay sends me or, or wants me to send her ideas of, uh, of things I want for Christmas and, um, you know, usually I'm like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm good, I don't really need anything, like, you know, no big deal. And I think I, think I really mean that. Um, and, and, you know, I think there's probably a lot of us that mean that. Like, I don't need anything, I got all I need, like, I don't really care. Um, but, but let me let you in on a little secret um, as we get started here this morning. Everyone says they don't care about gifts until they get something terrible, right? Like, like look at this like, on the screen. Like, everybody says they don't care about gifts until they get something terrible. Like, have you ever been given a bad gift? Anybody ever been given a, a bad gift? Um, where, like, you have to force a smile, you know, you're thinking to yourself, man, you really, you really shouldn't have, <laughs> you know, like, like really. Uh, or, you know, you're trying your best not to lie, and so you just blurt out something like, well, this is a surprise. <laughs> you know, like, I can't believe you got me, you got me that. Um, and, you know, or you're, you're starting to think about how or when you can re-gift this to someone else. Um, man, I, my brother likes to tell a story, and, and for whatever reason, he just won't let it go. Um, drives my parents nuts, but he claims that one year all they gave him was a phone charger. He was like, he was 19, and he kind of thought at that point in his life he should get something a little, a little more than, uh, than like a $20 phone charger from mom and dad for Christmas, and so he like uh, never, ever lets it go. Lindsay and I will tell you, like maybe the times where we've gotten stuff, we're like, what are we going to do with this? Like, you know, mixed jams. Like, I don't really like, I don't really like jams, so thank, thank you for that, though. Like, the thought um, is not what counts, you know? Like, um, so, hey, I was, doing some, um, I was doing some really extensive research for this Christmas series, um, and, uh, and I, I came across like, like some, um, some really uh, good source material on Reddit. And, uh, <laughs> right? So, so I came across this thread, and I just, I just meant to kind of like be there for a little bit, and I, I gotta be honest with you, like I might have wasted an hour just like reading story after story of people who said that they, uh, you know, shared stories of terrible gifts that they got. So let me just give you a few of these. Um, this one guy says, hey, one, uh, you, can, you, can, you can, yeah, throw that first one up there. Um, yeah, okay. So uh, it'll make sense in a second. He says, hey, one, one Christmas, I only got clothes as gifts. 
I actually like getting clothes, and uh, I remember the designs on them being amazing. Problem was, every article of clothing was too small for me, and none of them came with a gift receipt, so we couldn't return or exchange them. Hence the fat guy in a little coat, right? So um, all these clothes ended up going to my little brother, and so he got double the amount of gifts while I had literally nothing. It put me in a sour mood, and my dad got mad at me uh, for whining about my gifts. He said I wasn't grateful, and I got sent to my room for the rest of the day on Christmas, right? They, they brought me a small plate of food for dinner. Can you just imagine them, like, like just like, like putting it under the door? You know, like, <laughs> I'll teach you. He says, my family was always a more, it's the thought that counts rather than the gift. And as a 12-year-old, though, I was salty. I didn't get any cool clothes that I could wear. I, he says, I don't hold a grudge, but that Christmas stands out in my mind, of course, right? A little bit of, little bit of trauma. He's probably in therapy at this point. Uh, here's another one. Um, uh, you can throw that next picture up. This guy says, when I, uh, while in college, I got, a, I got a bag full of plastic cowboys and Indians figurines from Kmart as a Christmas present. Grandma never seemed to understand that I wasn't eight anymore, right? Yeah, yeah. I actually don't even know if you can play this anymore. It's like uh, p- politically incorrect. Um, and then, I, and then I, uh, I read this one, which I thought was amazing. Uh, this guy says, I once received a single guitar pick. It was the one thing I received from my collective cousins for Christmas. Like they all pitched in to get him a guitar pick. You know? He says, I understand that we hadn't really spoken or been great friends for several years, but honestly, it was just a bit insulting. I, I would have rather gotten nothing but a Merry Christmas and a hug. All this did was cement the notion that they didn't really know or care about me, right? So uh, I think that's a great segue into where I want to head this morning because I think that sometimes a gift can reveal how much someone doesn't really know you. Wouldn't you agree? Like, like the gift they got you makes it obvious that they don't really get you at all. Like, you know, if, um, you know, it, it, fellas, let me just give you a little, little insight. Um, your wife does not want a vacuum for Christmas, okay? Like, like just don't, like don't even think about it or like some household appliance or product. Like, like just, you know, um, it's just interesting how a gift reveals um, how much uh, someone doesn't get you, but it's even more insulting when the relationship is, is supposed to be close. Like when it's a spouse, when it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you're sitting there going like, do you even know me at all? Do you even get me at all? I can't believe you got this for me. Um, and apparently this is a bigger issue than we might realize because 52% of Americans surveyed admit to getting at least one unwanted gift over the holidays, totaling uh, roughly 138 million American adults. Uh, they say it's the thought that counts, but if you wind up giving someone a present they don't want, how much thought did you actually put into it? I think that's a, that's a fair question, especially if you're giving me jam. Like, really? Like, do you know me in any way? Uh, last year, the average adult, re- I'm gonna get a bunch of jam from y'all, aren't I? So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, last year, uh, yeah, I'm gonna regift it. I'm gonna regift it. Okay. <laughs> Last year, the average adult received at least one unwanted Christmas gift, uh, worth roughly sixty dollars. So, I mean, a sixty dollar gift on average spent on that gift that like the person didn't want, like you really shouldn't have. Meaning that approximately eight point three billion dollars was spent on unwanted Christmas gifts in 2022 alone. And then it says in the study, it says Gen Zers led the way. Uh, by far, 67% of Gen Zers said that they received a Christmas gift in 2022 that they did not want. Now, uh, yeah, like a bunch of selfish people, right? Just spoiled, you know, first world problems. I get all that. So we've all probably felt this pressure of trying to pick out the right 
gift for someone, and it can be a bit excruciating, uh, but the payoff is usually worth it, especially when you find like the perfect one uh, for someone uh, who is special. But there's also nothing like realizing that you completely wasted your time and money on something that they will never use, right? You're like, oh yeah, never seen you wear that sweater I got you. Um, so let, let me just give you this thought. Gift giving provides some level of insight into how the person giving the gift sees you. Wouldn't you agree? Like, the types of gifts we give people usually reveal the type of relationship that we have with that person. So, so like the best or most expensive gifts are usually reserved for the people who we love the most, right? I mean, it'd be a little inappropriate for me like, right, to spend like the least on my wife and the most on some person I hardly know, right? That's just not how it works. Usually we spend the least uh, or, or, and give the smallest to, to people who, who they, we have relationships with them maybe, but, but you know, not as close as others, like, like how, many of all, how many of y'all know that jewelry says something about the kind of relationship that you have with that person, right? Um, how many of y'all know that like a can of mixed nuts says something as, as well, right? Like it, it tells you the kind of relationship that's going on here. So um, look at this thought. Gifts aren't the meaning of Christmas, thank God, but every gift conveys a meaning. In fact, we can't help but wonder, what does the gift you gave me say about the way you see me? What does this gift say about our relationship, about the kind of person you think I am? What does it say about the connection you believe we have or, or even want to have? And I bring this up. I bring all, this, all of this up uh, because there is a scene in the Christmas story that I want us to dive into this month where there are these magi from the east, and they travel a great distance at a great cost to give three very specific gifts to Jesus. And most of us are probably very familiar with this, right? Because they're, they're always in the classic nativity scene and we know the three wise men and, um, and usually we, we understand the gifts that they brought. Have you ever, you ever just wondered like why those gifts? Just wondered like why? Why, why would they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and myrrh as gifts to a baby? Like what, what, what's he gonna do with those? Um, what's a baby gonna do with these things? What would compel the magi to go to all this trouble, why would they give these kinds of, of gifts? Like, what are these gifts essentially communicating is the question we should ask. What do these gifts tell us about the ways in which these magi or these wise men saw Jesus? And so Matthew chapter two is where I wanna, I wanna um, uh, camp out uh, this morning. Uh, the story of the magi coming to see Jesus is only found in one place in scripture. Nowhere else, it's found in Matthew two. Now, um, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you may know that Matthew and Luke give us the detailed accounts of the birth of Jesus, but only Matthew's account tells us about the wise men, so we don't hear about him in Luke, hear about them in Luke. Um, and when you, so when you read this, you're like, it's interesting because, you know, Matthew evidently felt like it was important to include it in his Gospel, and so he could have told us about the wise men lots of different ways. He could have said, you know, the wise men just showed up suddenly, they gave these gifts, end of story, but that's not what he does. Like you almost get this picture that he's like slowing down, taking his time to mention this part of the story. And, and, and I, this is what I believe when I read scripture is I, I believe that every detail um, is there for a reason. Uh, every detail that we read in scripture is there on purpose and for a purpose, right? And, and so there's no, no real random things or details in, in scripture. And so why does Matthew take the time to include the story of the wise men into his bio, biographical account of Jesus' life? And I, and I just kind of wonder this year, could it be because Matthew felt that these three gifts imply something important about the identity of this child born in this manger 2,000 years ago? 
And that's what I, I really want us to wrestle with all month long uh, here um, in this series. I want us to look at the three gifts of Christmas and place them in their cultural context to understand their significance both then and now, okay? So Matthew chapter two, verse one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now part of what's interesting to me about this story is that you know, these men who come to see Jesus uh, are often referred to by a handful of different nicknames. Like we see in the text this morning that they're called the Magi. Traditionally, when it comes to the nativity, we refer to them as, you know, the three wise men or, or whatever. They're sometimes called kings, just like the, the, the famous carol, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We traverse from, okay, anybody? No. Um, Sometimes they're referred to as astrologers, sometimes as magicians. But part of the reason for why they are often referred to by several different names is because we don't really know who they were. And, and, and we don't really know where exactly they came from. Uh, there, there's, there's limited information we have on the Magi. And so part of what makes the story so fascinating is that the Magi are pretty mysterious people. In fact, that word Magi literally means mysterious. That's what it, that's what it means. It's, it's where we get the words magic or magician from. Um, and so we see in the story, like, like it, and it's, it's not that long. They, they show up to give their gifts, and then they seemingly exit stage left. They're out of, they're out of the picture, off of the nativity scene, really never to be heard from again, okay? And so apart from this account in Matthew's gospel, we don't know a whole lot about the Magi, uh, but we do know some historical things, right? Not necessarily things that we read in Scripture, but some things that have been written in history about Magi in general. And let me just give you a little bit of, little bit of background and context. We know that, that they were some of the most significant spiritual leaders of their time. They possessed unique wisdom and insight. They were a group of elite leaders who had come up within, uh, in this case, like the Persian Empire. Um, but really, they got their start in the Babylonian Empire. I'll explain the connection in a second. They were known as a group of very intelligent advisors for the kings of their day. And so, uh, they, they, these people were often leveraged to interpret complex situations and give sound advice. So they were kind of like the, uh, you could almost like, like think of like sorcerers or spiritual people. And so they mattered to like different kings and leaders because, you know, they, they wanted the advantage. They wanted to know, they, they were very spiritual people, wanted to know, you know, what they should do. And so they would consult with the Magi. So when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, okay, remember the Babylonian Empire, when he was attacking and conquering Judah, so when he was trying to conquer the southern kingdom in Jerusalem, chief magi were with him, advising him of their perspective about how to destroy and capture the people of God and to take them into captivity. Um, if you think about for a minute Daniel, if you remember his story, uh, when Daniel was taken into exile in Babylon for 70 years, most of his relationships in Babylon end up being with the magi. In fact, if you remember, God grants Daniel the capacity to interpret dreams. Well, for the Magi, that was the number one skill that they valued, this dream interpretation, the ability to understand the divine. And so when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream one day, uh, and all of the other Magi cannot understand and interpret it, Daniel comes in, and what does he say? He says, the one true God has granted me this ability. And Daniel uh, interprets this dream, and as a result, he is made ruler uh, over the entire province 
of Babylon and chief prefect over the Magi of Babylon. It's a pretty big deal. Like he, he's all of a sudden like, like the man. He is the top dog when it comes to the Magi in a very pagan culture in Babylon. Time goes by, as you know, Daniel dies, empires rise and fall. Babylon becomes conquered by Persia. But even though like a new empire rises up, this new, this new empire still has value for like the pagan, divine, uh, spiritual things. And so they bring the Magi from Babylon into Persia, uh, the, the, the empire of Persia, and give them spiritual influence in this new empire. And so in this new empire, these Magi are still carrying within their tradition specific words of prophecy and insight that have been passed down from the days of Daniel. Are you catching me? Okay. So, so, so generations come and go. Hundreds of years pass by. But in their tradition, there are still these words spoken by Daniel that have been passed down, okay, about their future, about what would happen. And so even though it wasn't, like, available to them in the moment, those seeds were sown over many years earlier by Daniel. And, and I would say it, it's almost as if they were haunted by the words of Daniel because they never forgot them. Uh, and, they, and, they, and they continue to, to pass them on and bring them up over the course of several generations. And it caused them to continue to seek and to pay attention to the times that they were living in and to pay attention to what was happening outside of their tradition, specifically what was happening with the Israelite people in Jerusalem. And so all of that backstory, okay, one day, these magi had noticed a star in the sky and they become convinced that this star coincides with the prophecies of old from the time of Daniel. This is what's going on here. So they set out on this journey, they travel a great distance, they get to Jerusalem, and when they arrive, the question on their mind, the question that they start asking is Matthew chapter two, verse two, they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, we've come to worship him. Now these guys don't know, like we don't even know really where they're from, but we know that they know some things and they knew to be looking for a sign and they knew what the sign meant and these things were passed down in their tradition. So when they get to the palace in Jerusalem, they, they, they know the search that they were on is for the, the one who has been born king of the Jews. We've come to worship him. Now, here is what ha what's happening. I want you to understand the significance of this. The Magi show up in Jerusalem, and they begin asking the current king where the new king is. You, you, you ever caught that? Like, that's what's going on. And so the situation is even more awkward because the current king, King Herod, he's not technically Jewish. Uh, he was raised Jewish by his parents who had converted at some point, but he wasn't born Jewish, which frustrated the people of Israel because they wanted a, the born king, okay? Uh, they, 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 were, they were frustrated by this because uh, Herod was an appointed king. He wasn't a born king. He was appointed by Rome, the empire which... Uh, you know, really ruled the world at the time, and they had occupied Israel. So, so the Jews were under the oppression of Rome, and they were frustrated that Caesar Augustus had come in, and he had, he had, he had handpicked Herod to be the king, and now they're living under all this, this rule, and, and they wanted their own king who had been born Jewish. And so, um, right at the time of his birth, Jesus' birth, the Jews desperately wanted a Jewish leader who would rise up, push out Rome as their oppressor, overthrow Herod, all of this kind of stuff, so that they could live freely in their own land, so they could have a sense of agency once again. The problem for the Jews was that they had one of Rome's really fake kings. 
Herod the Great, he'd been handpicked. He'd been installed as the ruler uh, of Israel. And so at the time of Jesus' birth, like, like the Jews really had a double problem. They didn't just want to get rid of the Romans, but their own system, their own political system had been corrupted by a Jewish king who gave his allegiance first and foremost to Rome. So you're catching kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of the setting, okay. Um, they longed for this political landscape to change. And they hated Herod. They longed for a new king. And all of a sudden, one day, these magi, these mysterious magi, they sort of waltz into the palace in Jerusalem, and they ask King Herod the one question everybody knows that you don't ask him. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Not appointed, but born. Somebody's got a death wish, right? And talk about awkward. In fact, Herod's not too happy about this. In verse three, it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. He was disturbed because he wants to be in control, right? And he wants to stay king for as long as he can. And that's, so we don't, that's why Herod is disturbed. The reason why all Jerusalem is disturbed is because they understand that Herod is wicked enough and that he is evil enough to do whatever it takes to be in control and to remain king. Like, what are you doing? Why would you say something like that? Um, in fact, Herod basically stayed in power uh, through ruthless violence, uh, massacring and murdering his way into power, his own people, by the way. Um, in fact, um, second century uh, uh, historian Josephus, uh, so he, this is really only about 100 years after Jesus, uh, so think about how much more recent the information would have been for him to write this uh, Josephus said, Herod was determined to leave none of his opponents alive. Masses were butchered in the streets, crowded together in houses, with no mercy shown to infants or the old or the weak or female. Uh, yeah, he was disturbed on many levels. Many, many, many levels. In fact, there's a legend about King Herod that he would dress up in like peasant's clothes and that he would, he would go out into the streets and mingle amongst the people. Uh, and if he heard them speaking bad about him, he would have them and their entire family killed and he'd burn their house to the ground. Like that, that was just kind of like his, his entertainment or whatever, or how he'd spend his time, go try to find people who didn't like him. Um, and so uh, he had 11 wives, 43 kids, um, uh, the majority of which he would become suspicious of and he would have killed. Uh, so yeah, he's not the best kind of husband or dad um, in, any, in any sort of way. Um, look at this thought. The people of Jerusalem were disturbed because of what they thought this really disturbed king would do if someone threatened his kingship. So this question from the Magi felt like a threat to Herod's rule as king. And, and everyone's just going like, what did you just say? Like, shh, shh, shh. <laughs> like, don't say that. Matthew chapter two, verse four, the story goes on and it says, when, um, this is about Herod, when he had called together all the, chief, uh, the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. That word Christ just simply means Messiah, Right? So, so where the Messiah was to be born, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly. He kind of has this private meeting with them. He found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Okay, now everything you know about Herod, how likely do you think that's what his intentions were? 
right? Uh, it's starting to feel a little unsafe for baby Jesus. It's starting to feel a little unsafe even for these magi. Uh, I mean, they're probably looking at each other going, we got to go. We got to get out of here. Um, verse, verse 9, it, it goes on and it says, after they, the magi, heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the, uh, in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, here it is, of gold and of frankincense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And then you skip down to verse 16. It says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So he had heard this baby was born. We don't know how long it took the Magi. We don't know how old Jesus was. These guys actually weren't at the, at the manger. We don't know exactly when uh, they saw how old Jesus was when they met him, but it was within the first two years of his life. Um, and so the Magi bring these three famous gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I think all of us kind of understand what gold is. Uh, wouldn't mind some being given to us. In fact, if you want to know my Christmas list, um, I'll tell you, I'll, it's like, what do you want for Christmas, Pastor Jordan? I'll take some gold. You got some gold? I'll take some gold. Like a gold bar would be great. Um, <laughs> but the other two in here, like they're pretty confusing. You're like when you think about like frankincense and myrrh, and we'll get into those in the weeks to come. But, but even like when we think about gold, like even though we understand it, um, most of us probably have like a gold item or two. You know, maybe you have a wedding ring, uh, a necklace, a gold cross. Um, so maybe it's not as unusual for us to maybe possess a, a piece of gold or have something that is gold in our home, uh, which is much different than during the time of Jesus because, because this wasn't the case. It wasn't, it wasn't very common amongst uh, just, just your everyday people. Most of the gold belonged either to kings or to governments. So it wasn't very common for people just to have gold. Um, and, and so what I want you to understand about the gift of gold that the Magi brought Jesus is this right here, that presenting Jesus with gold was a way of proclaiming him king. This is, this is what's going on in the story. In fact, there are some gifts that can mean a lot of different things. I think we all know that. But there are certain gifts that only mean one thing. Like, like ladies, how many of y'all know, like, like, like when your boyfriend or, or whatever decided to get down on his knee and give you a diamond ring, that gift means one thing, right? There's no other message being communicated in that moment, right? If he's, you know, if like, that'd be like the worst thing possible. You're, 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 you're believing one message and he's like, oh yeah, I just, I just, happy birthday. You know, like, no, that's not a birthday, a birthday gift. That's not a birthday gift, okay? It means something very, very, very specific. Um, there's no confusion about what that gift means. Well, gold is the same kind of gift, especially in the Near East, uh, ancient Near East and, and uh, first century. It's a gift that only conveys one thing, especially when you're the Magi and you have um, come to give a gift to someone that you believe to be the newborn king. And when they give him this gift, it says, it says, it says they bowed down and worshiped him, this baby in a manger. Uh, another, another way to understand that, so we think of like worship maybe more in, in, in the context of like what we already did this morning and music and all that. Really what's going on here is they are, they're honoring Jesus or they're paying homage. You think more about entering into the courts of a king and bowing down and like bowing lower. Like that's really more of what's happening here. Um, and it's interesting, right? Because I think that that picture, that image of the, the wise men or the magi coming into the presence of Jesus and bowing down and worshiping him is, um, 
It seems like something that maybe, maybe all of us understand on some level when we finally understood who Jesus really was, right? Like, like many of us responded in a similar sort of way to that, to that understanding, to that knowledge, even laying something of ourselves down in his presence. Like you, you can see just that natural response, like this, he is God and I am not, and coming low and humble and giving him something of worth, something of value. And so in this story, What's amazing is like there's two different reactions to seeing Jesus as king. You have the, 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 the magi who are filled with wonder and awe and worship. And then you have Herod who's filled with fear and terror. Magi are delighted. Herod is disturbed. Like, what are you going to do here? And why? Why are there such different reactions? Well, very simply, the magi aren't interested in ruling this region. Herod is. Right? Herod wants to stay in control. And there's something I think we all intuitively understand about kings and kingdoms, even though we don't live under that kind of rule today. And that is this, if you're taking notes, that two kings can't rule at once. They can't. Kings don't really share well. You know what I'm saying? In fact, you can call yourself a king all you want. In fact, there's plenty of kings still, even to this day, all throughout the earth. But the name of Jesus, one of his most recognized names is King of Kings. Like, you can try to share that name with him all you want, but do not be mistaken, the kind of king he is is the king of kings, right? Kings don't really share well, and there can only really be uh, two who rule at once. Look at this. Only one can ascend the throne. Only one is able to assert their will. Only one gets the ultimate say. Only one is fully in charge, and only one is actually ever really in control, no matter what they say no matter what they call themselves. And this is why Herod is disturbed in this story. He knows there's no room for two kings. And he doesn't want to give up control. And I know, I know how easy it can be for us to look at Herod through the, the lens maybe of, of presentism, right, where we interpret his actions and reactions through our modern present values and concepts, you know, sort of thinking to ourselves, what an egomaniac, like, look what he did. And um, I still think that if you interpreted him through our modern values, you'd still be right, because he was like an egomaniac. Um, the, look at this with me, though. The problem with presentism is that we can judge Herod and never stop to think for a minute about how this is the same issue we all have with Jesus. We can look at his story and we go, man, what a crazy king. And never stop to really look at ourselves and go, man, like, like we all, like I battle with this same thing forgetting to acknowledge that there's really a Herod in all of us. And in order for me to acknowledge that Jesus is the king means that I have to stop acting as if I'm the king. And that never comes easy for anyone, does it? All of us battle with this desire to be in control, to be in charge, to call the shots. And as soon as Jesus enters the picture, we begin to realize what we may have to lay down and let go of in order to really honor the true king. And that is very uncomfortable for us. I think that we may often miss the king and kingdom imagery that is found in Jesus' story. You know, I, I think we, we, we may miss it because we don't live in a monarchy, you know? Like, that's one of the challenges of, of teaching, you know, kingdom principles in, in the kind of political society that we live in. Like, it's just we don't understand it as, as well as maybe we would if, if we lived. I'm not, I'm not suggesting a monarchy, but I'm just saying, like, like that, that's the language of, of, of scripture, and, but the, or the original audience understood this, okay? And so when they're listening to these gospel stories, 
uh, be told or they're listening to Jesus talk and, and, and instantly their ears would have perked up and they would have noticed the kingdom language being used uh, all throughout uh, the gospels. And let me give you just some examples that point to the kingship of Jesus, okay? Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, this sounds like something a king would say to his subjects, doesn't it? Like, listen, you're going to have to give up your way, and you're going to have to start to do things my way because I'm king, and you're not king, right? This is, hey, you want to follow me? You got to do it my way. This is, it sounds like, like king subject language, does it not? Matthew 6.10, we know when Jesus uh, teaches us how to pray here, uh, he, says, he says, when you pray, pray this way, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what Jesus is saying is like, hey, you're gonna wanna regularly, regularly ask God to remind you that he is the king and you are not. When you're praying, you wanna regularly ask God to remind you of this because we're gonna be tempted often to believe that we are king and that the world actually does revolve around us. And so he's saying here, when he's teaching us how to pray in, in the, the Lord's Prayer, make it a daily habit to ask God to bring his kingdom and his will into your life and into the earth. And then, and then Mark 14, 36, which, which is really a fascinating scripture. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he would be betrayed. And, and, and he's praying and he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. In other words, he's saying, like, I'd rather not go to the cross. Can we, do, can we do something else here? Um, and look what he says. He says, yet not, not what I will, but what you will. So he's, he's about to go to the cross, die on behalf of the sins of the world, and this is what he prays. He prays this prayer. This is something, listen, this prayer right here, this is something that a subject in a kingdom would bow down and say to their king. Jesus is doing this right here. This is what I want. This is how I want things to go. This is what I would rather do, but I know that you have a different perspective than me, and so I defer to you, not my will, but yours be done. Kingdom language. And I, and I, just, I, just, wanna, I just wanna make it very clear. When you read the Bible, we're gonna do some uh, teaching in January about how to read the Bible the right way, but, but let me just make it really clear. Like Every story you read, you're not the hero. Right? We're not the hero in the story. You read David and Goliath, you're not David, okay? You're one of, you're one of the, either the Israelites or the Philistines, like, shaking in your boots. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, we're not the hero in the story. There is one hero in Scripture. It's Jesus, okay? There's one hero. It's Jesus. And, um, and so when we, when we read these, the, the, these Scriptures here, like, um, not my will. Yours be done. There is one king, and it is not me. It's him. Let me just share this with you. When you realize that this is the kind of relationship Jesus wants to have with you, and you are someone who likes to be in control, you will be disturbed. You'll be disturbed. And here's the metaphoric implication of the Magi's gift of gold. Jesus is ultimately in charge of everything I am desperate to control. He's ultimately in charge. And that's the symbolism here. And, and, and look, you know, we don't use the language, you know, commonly, but you and I, we have our own kingdom. 
We, we set up our own kingdoms. Our kingdom is whatever and wherever we decide to assert our control, right? Where, where we decide to insist on our will or where we're the ones who get the final say, like that is like, like how far your kingdom reaches in your own world, in your life. And it's our self-made kingdom. Most of us become obsessed with building and furthering and supporting and insulating our own little kingdom. And so the real question becomes this, Maybe the question of the day, when your will clashes with God's, which will you bow to? Which will you bow to? In other words, is your priority to be in control of your kingdom or is your priority to build God's kingdom? And when your will clashes with God's, remember that there can only be one king. There can only be one king. You ever get annoyed or frustrated when God asks you to take something from your kingdom and leverage it for his kingdom? When God asks you to do something that you don't really wanna do, but he tells you that he knows things you don't know and that this is something that you need to do. You ever get frustrated with God in these kinds of moments? Like, like what do you do with that sort of internal prompting? Instead of keeping that all for yourself, like, like Jesus is saying, hey, that you should you should give that away. And you're like, no thanks. Like I don't that wasn't an internal problem. That was that was something bad that I ate. Or man, you should serve here. You should serve there. And and, and you know, you, you feel like that internal prompting is there, but you're like, eh, no thanks. Or man, you should begin developing this healthy habit, this spiritual habit, and you're like, man, I'd rather not. And so look, I, look look at the side. I think because it's been reduced down to this cute and adorable nativity scene we often miss the abrasive implications of the Christmas story. And I think that's what some of these gifts really bring into focus. Right? right? Like, it, it's, it's not as cute as it looks. I mean, babies are cute and all that. I get it. But, like, man, there's smelly farm animals. It's, it's actually kind of like a disgusting story in some ways. But it's, it's, it's abrasive, too, because these are, like, powerful people who are incredibly wealthy and they come to a child and they, they bow down and they worship him as king. They give something of themselves that represents that is the king, I'm not the king. And I think sometimes we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we actually bring to Jesus that communicates this idea? What is it that I'm consistently doing and bringing to Jesus that would suggest that he is really the king of my life, not me? Yeah. There's not as many amens today. I just feel like they're, they're you know, it's like, man, I need to sit down there and shout myself down a little bit. Um, here's, the, here's the harsh truth I gotta tell you. Like, if you tell Jesus that you will serve him as long as he does what you want him to do, or if you tell him that you'll do that for him if you get to have control of this, then he's not your king. You're the king. You're the king of your own little world, and what this story is showing us is that there are really only two responses to Jesus' kingship, Herod's response and the Magi's response. There's two responses. Where we don't want to give up control and where we're willing to give him everything. And look at this. Anytime you give a king absolute power and authority, it can be dangerous. We know that. Right? That's, why, that's why we get worried about that sometimes in, this, in, in certain political 
environments around the world where like, well, they have, that's a dictator rising up. They have way too much power. And so we, we understand intuitively, like anytime a king has absolute power and authority, it can be dangerous because not all kings are good kings. But Jesus is the only uncompromisingly good king worthy of unconditional trust. He's the only one. And the story that we are reading this morning, Matthew 2, and really the entire story of Jesus reveals that Jesus is essentially the anti-Herod, right? Like, like, like the boldest example of this is that Herod sacrifices his subjects on behalf of himself to remain in power, and Jesus sacrifices himself on behalf of his, sub, uh, on behalf of his subjects by giving up his power. He's like, you know, I'll come and I'll lay my life down for them. Herod is a story of a rise to power. Jesus is a, is, is a story of a descent from power, which is what Christmas is all about. Humble, unable to, to, to protect himself. He comes as a child. He descends from power. In other words, Herod will make you do whatever he wants you to do to make things good for him. But Jesus willingly puts aside what's good for him in the moment to, to do what is good for you in the long term. Check this out. Jesus is the kind of king who always goes first. Right? Meaning he will never ask you to sacrifice at a greater level than his own sacrifice. He's always going to go first. He'll never ask you to do something that he hasn't already done. And so we, we, we see this happening, right, in Jesus' life. And, and we come back to Matthew 2, verse 2, where these magi come before Herod and they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, when you study the book of Matthew, you discover that this title that the, Magi's, uh, the Magi used for Jesus is, is not used to describe Jesus again until the very end of this book. This title, King of the Jews, it bookends Jesus' life. It's there at the beginning, title that's used here at his birth, and then it's not used again until it's used four times, sort of in rapid succession, inside the story of his death. Uh, one of the, the most famous examples is the sign that is, that, is, that is put above him on the cross. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Here's the kind of king that Jesus is. At the climax of his life, he ascends a cross, not a throne. And instead of lording over people, he lays his life down for them instead. And then he invites his followers to do the same thing for each other. Right, not to ascend a throne, but to ascend a cross. To lay our lives down in service of each other, which is the last thing that we want to do, right? It's the last thing that we want to do. So I want us just to consider this. What is it that when it comes to our life and when we put ourselves kind of in this story and we think of ourselves like these magi, what is it that when we come to Jesus, what are we laying down and what are we giving him? And if, is my sacrifice or is my gift that I'm giving Jesus, is it a gift that is worthy of that of a king? Does it communicate his kingship in my life and not my own? Let me ask you this, what is the thing in your life that if it didn't go your way, would cause you to question the goodness of God. Well, what's that thing, you know? Like, another way to say it, like what area in your life, physical, emotional, relational, financial, occupational, like are you fighting God for control? Like this doesn't go your way, I'm not sure God's good anymore. 
Because the truth is, like, like, like sometimes I just want to sit on the throne. Like, I, to be real, like sometimes I just want to do that. And, 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 and you know what? Like, this might be the most powerful thing I say all day. So to give me a couple seconds. God doesn't fight the way we fight. God will not fight you for the throne. He'll let you have it. That's the, that's the thing that always kind of amazes me about Jesus, right? He doesn't fight the same way I fight. If I want the throne, he'll let me have it. He'll give it away. And it's dangerous because if you seize the throne, the one you're cheating is not really God, it's, it's you. Because you're fighting the one who's there to save you and Jesus is never gonna force his kingship on you. And for a lot of people, Jesus is a good savior for them, but he's not somebody that they've really allowed to be their Lord or their king. And that's gotta flip. That's gotta change. He's not gonna force his kingship on us. That's not the kind of king he is, not the kind of kingdom that he is building. He's simply gonna love you. He's gonna sacrifice for you. And he's gonna invite you into what he's doing. And then he's gonna wait for you to respond. But if you wanna be king, he'll let you try it out. And the call of Christmas is that Jesus is the king that we ought to submit to. He's the kind of king that we ought to submit to. And the question is, will you? Will I? Will you honor King Jesus in every area of your life? And my prayer is that you would learn to trust Jesus in a way that you can't trust any other king, even yourself. May we learn to trust King Jesus in a way that we cannot trust any other king, including ourselves. Like he's more faithful, he's way better. He can do a better job than I can. He knows what he is doing. He is the one who deserves the throne, who sits on the throne. Who am I to ever think that I should try to sit there? He, he is my king, he is my God. I lay it all down for him. Would you stand with me this morning? Mm. Bow your heads with me for a moment as we get ready to close. Mm. Just take a moment here. We're gonna dismiss in a moment plenty of things to get onto for the rest of our day, but I don't want this moment to pass us by. Just right here as we stand here, as we contemplate the word of God that has been spoken and taught to us this morning, will you just take a moment and just invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Invite him to touch any part of your heart that needs to be touched right now. For him to reveal things that need to surface, that need to be dealt with. If you're here this morning, you would just say, Pastor Jordan, like, look, I, I know I know that when it comes down to Jesus really being my king, I've been fighting him for that seat for way too long and I, I, I've gotta stop, I've gotta, I've gotta give up, I've gotta surrender, I gotta, I gotta let him be the king of my life in a, in a, in a way I've, I've never really done that. I know even though I prayed that prayer a long time ago to make him my savior, 
but I, I, I've, I've really, really struggled all these years to make him my king. And if that's you today, and it's time to just, to just see some things flip, to rearrange some priorities, to make Jesus king over your life, to walk out of here knowing, really taking that pressure off yourself to have it all together, to be the king of your own life and to let him lead you. Can I just see your hand today? It's time to make Jesus king. Come on. Yeah, it's everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. There's, there's tons of people here this morning. Come on. You're in good company. Like, I got both hands up, right? Jesus, be our king. Be our king. We come before you today, oh Jesus, and we, we surrender ourselves to you once and for all. Forgive us where maybe our pride has gotten in the way. Forgive us for maybe where we thought we knew best and for where we have tried to kind of, kind of, kind of retain certain th- aspects of our life and not surrender them fully. Forgive us, oh God, where we thought maybe we could do this better than you. And I pray, Jesus, right now, that, that what you would start to receive out of this room, out of the people this morning here under the sound of my voice, is just a heart posture of surrender. Willing to kind of step down from our own throne and to enthrone you as the king of our life right now. Which means that it's your way, not our way. Which means that it's what you want, not what we want. Which means that we're okay with no. And we don't always have to hear yes. We surrender to you. We imagine you, Jesus, in that garden, surrendering to your Father, saying, not my will, but your will be done. And so, God, I pray right now, out of every heart in this room right now, that there would be such a a, a resolve and a commitment to say those same words. Not my will. Not my will, but your will be done. And may we be people who bring to you a sacrifice, a gift out of our life, a gift out of our heart that is worthy of that of a king. May we bring you something of value out of our heart and out of our life, out of what we willingly lay down of ourselves that would suggest you're the king. We're not. And we're not gonna try to play this game anymore. And so we worship you, God. We lift you up. We thank you for the gift of Jesus coming to this earth to disrupt the darkness, to give us hope, to shine a light, to take us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. And so we pray this morning, oh God, that we wouldn't lose sight of that, that we wouldn't take advantage of the gift of Jesus, but instead we'd be surrendered to who you are and let you be Lord and let you be king every day in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you-